Welcome to The Universe in a Glass, the podcast where we trade drinks with friends and share the stories behind our favorite beverages. As always, we are joining you from the historic Line Hotel in the heart of Washington, D.C.'s Adams Morgan Enclave. Uh, thrilled to be joined today by wine entrepreneur Mary Taylor, who is bringing European wines a place to American consumers at approachable price points. Uh, as a young professional selling French and Italian wine in New York, Mary learned the old world way of enjoying wine, not as a luxury good reserved for special occasions, but a living agricultural product that brings to, that belongs rather, to everyday life. Uh, she brings this joy to an American audience through her elegant white label designed to unlock the world of Appalachian-based old world wines for a broader audience. She currently offers over, 12, over 20 different bottlings, I don't want to sell you short, um, across four countries and was just nominated as Wine Enthusiast's Importer of the Year. True story. True story. Thank you so much for joining us, Mary. Great to be here. Thanks for having Absolutely. me. Absolutely. Uh, for those of you listening for the first time or those of you joining us again, just a refresher, the premise here, blessedly simple. We each have a bottle to share one with the other. Uh, Mary has brought along one of her newest releases, a stylish Spanish wine from the windswept plains of Manchuela, uh, and the forgotten grape Moravia Agraria. Uh, Agria, rather. Uh, I've followed suit with another one of Mary's offerings. Uh, this is equally Spanish and equally esoteric, but from a different windswept corner of the country, Leon, and a different varietal in Prieto Picudo. Uh, we'll taste through them both while riffing about life and wine along the way. Then I'll close things out with a bit of verse dedicated to our guests. Uh, as a word of reminder, if you like the sound of what we're drinking, both of these wines will be available for sale at Revelers Hour, which is Washington's premier wa uh, pasta and wine bar across the street from our Line Hotel studio. Uh, thanks again, Mary. Pleasure to have you here. Uh, before we dive into the bottles at hand, a uh, few questions about your journey. Uh, did you grow up drinking the kinds of wines you now sell? Well, I love this question because uh, no, I grew up drinking, or no, no I, uh, I grew up eating Chef Boyardee. And, oh, nice. Um, like shit food. SpaghettiOs? All of it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, across I, across the full line. I got really into microwaved uh, frozen croissants. That oh, was nice. Like a, I had a stage, but yeah, no, like I um, I didn't have any food in my house growing up yeah. that was edible, and uh, and. <laughs> so How would your folks feel about this characterization of your they're, uh, they're your childhood diet? No, they know. They know very <laughs> well. Uh, I don't. You know, if I if and when I visit, I cook. You know, I okay. just, I go to the farm stand and do like a farm chicken and but yeah no I was like driven out of my house in search of food okay but I really young I like would I was so fascinated with like lobster and like oh I remember spare ribs I thought that was the fanciest thing uh, you grew up in New England did you not yeah I grew up in a really rich town called Concord Massachusetts oh okay yeah. awesome yeah but yeah we were like the Joad family of, of like, Concord and Lexington fame yes Excellent. yes very w wealthy but I don't know. My parents bought like a little bungalow there in the, I think the late 60s for not a lot of money. And they, we just didn't, we weren't conquered type people at okay. all. We were like trash on the front yard people, you know? So oh, wow. it was like really, it was really revealing when I'd go to my friend's house and they'd have like, they'd live in a turret on that side of their castle. Oh, uh, understood. There were no, no cars on center blocks in the front yard. No. And uh, like, 
the food that their family were cooking. I just like the smells of the rugs and the wood and the garlic and like everything. I was like, oh, you know, <laughs> coming back to like my plastic, you know, life. Um, so I really went out in search of good food, and I can talk about this forever and ever. So you just tell me what you want to know. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, how did what was so we have you, you know, kind of wanting to trade families and enjoying the intoxicating allure of you know rich leather-bound books and mahogany and you know uh, fresh ingredients yes. uh, throughout uh, the wealthier enclaves, herb gardens. Uh, yeah, oh yeah, my yeah, God. yeah. Of, of, of Concord now. Yeah. Uh, when did you first kind of fall in love with the wines that you now bring stateside? Well, I mean, I've had such a long journey. I mean, I, I worked since I was 11 I, with, you know, different things. Um, cheese being kind of one of the first uh, reveal eye-opening experiences because cheese is like one input and many outputs. It's like uh -huh. cow milk, and then there's like hundreds and thousands of tastes. Yeah. That, and that was really kind of the beginning of learning about it. Um, and it's fascinating. I feel like you kind of understand wine through that cheese lens a little bit. Totally. Because uh, I feel like you get frustrated that people immediately latch on to varietals in mm -hmm. the same way that a cheesemonger would probably get frustrated if you immediately latched on to cow, sheep, or goat. Exactly. And, and you're more kind of concerned with the end product for the sake of chev, gouda, you know, whatever else people are bringing to the table. Right, I mean, it's endlessly enjoyable. I mean, honestly, I was out last night with a bunch of people and we were like drinking bottle after bottle and not really, I mean, no offense to these wonderful, awesome people I had a blast with, but um, but the way it was like loud and, um, you know, wine was being like poured, like just sort of like casually and um, one thing after the other and like not paired with food. And like the way I learned wine would like the, the, the people who mentored me in wine would like totally have a meltdown at that. Yeah. <laughs> Cause like I was so lucky to be adopted by this tasting group in New York that was like a Juilliard professor, a bioengineer, a gastroenterologist, you know, like really serious collectors who, you know, you sit down, you, it's all well lit, you look at the wines, you taste blind, you discuss, there's no noise, no music on, yeah. you know, everybody, and then you have like a round table and then you reveal, but it's like, it's like seven hours of discussing oh, wow. wine in, in depth in like quiet um, with food. So like one thing last night, I was just like, oh, it's like acid, 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 like yeah. just the, the, the elegant pairings, like, Everything, like my whole life, I've wanted to like sit at that table, and I was really lucky that I got there in like probably my twenties. But uh, so but this yeah. was probably like the table you were looking for growing up in Concord, Mass. That you finally got, you know, invited to. What were you doing in the city when uh, you first kind of stumbled upon that tasting group? Yeah, well, I think the best thing that ever happened to me was I got a job in New York, so I got out of Boston. So like my origins in Boston are like really pretty rough like a lot of my friends like I mean all of them are like dead from one thing or another like suicide car accident drug overdose like all this tough stuff and then I feel like if I had stayed like I just don't think I'd have a, the quality of life I have now yeah. um so I got a job as Ellie Wiesel's personal assistant did you ever read Night? Uh, I know Ellie yeah um yeah and so it was like crazy. Um, so I, it didn't last very long. I moved there a week on September 4, 01. So yep. like 9-11 happened within a week. And wow. 
Um, and I just, and they offered me to go back to Boston and you know take my job with him back at Boston University, but I was working at his satellite office in New York, and I was like, no, hell no, I'm gonna stay. So I went on hot jobs, and I found a bunch of jobs, and I'm a very good interview. So I got a bunch of offers, and the lowest paying offer was at Sotheby's Wine Department. Oh, well. But because I had all this like cheese and restaurant and fascination, like, oh my God, when like, um, Todd English, sorry, uh, opened um, t Olives in Charlestown, Boston. I was like his best. The, I all my catering tip money I like put to going to eat there. Like, oh, cool. I was obsessed with the the fine table. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, so Sotheby's was was your kind of uh, entree point. Yeah, uh, but I didn't like world. have any nice clothes. I didn't have any confidence. I didn't like have a lot of you know. N I didn't know how to be in the world, and so like. It was a, kind of a terrible experience because, like, they hated. Like, they were just like, "Do you have any other outfits besides the one <laughs> suit you wear every day?" <laughs> uh, yeah, it was just. It was kind of a, like a place where like children of billionaires go to like pretend they have a job, and they pay nothing. So I had yeah. to move to Queens, and the second you say you live in Queens to like the Upper East Siders, they're like, "Oh, you're not even a human." Um, That's changed though. Queens is getting bougier. Oh, it's so expensive. I wish yeah. I could afford a apartment yeah. there. Um, but that led me, I th I got fired in, I think it was 14 months. Oh, wow. Uh, what, yeah. did they, what did they fire you for after? Did they finally get tired of the one suit? or? Yeah, the office manager like had it out for me for a long time. And like I, I guess I think I forgot to put like a voicemail on like the company line that I was with. Like, I did something dumb, and yeah. I was 24. And yeah. Partying a lot. Doing doing twenty four year old things. Yeah, yeah, I don't think I would have I, I would have fired myself. Um, yeah, but then I went to uh, Acker Merrill. I was I had an interim bike. I was a bike messenger for oh. four months. You've lived you've lived like ten lives. I feel like you could tell me any story about yourself, and I would incredibly believe it. Yeah, it's not actually like a happy thing. <laughs> I, I know, I know. <laughs> like it's just like I'm a workaholic. At the very least, though, it's character building. <laughs> well, I like I always say like, what would I do if I'm not like workaholic and like I'd have to have to like face myself. Which yeah, would that be sounds horrifying. Horrifying. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, I was bike messaging, and I w back in the day, Zagat had this blue guide, and it was all the gourmet stores. It wasn't oh, cool. the restaurants, so I was like, you know, I couldn't afford really to eat in restaurants, but I could afford to buy like a really nice the raw thing. ingredients. Yeah, so yeah. I like went to every gourmet store in New York City that had like twenty four or above rating. I learned about like all the little nuanced spice shops and cheese shops. Like I was a super nerd. Cool. And um and I walked into Acromerrill and I bought six bottles of wine that I biked home to like Woodside. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I met somebody there and they said basically like, Oh, you worked at Sotheby's? We're hiring, why don't you work here? So I started working there. And yeah, that awesome. was like that was the beginning of a huge thing. <laughs> and that was a more positive professional experience than the um, uber wealthy auction house. <laughs> um, I mean, I didn't like. I was now. I'm like 25, 26, yeah. and I'm like. I think I was pretty good looking, but I had no idea. And like, I th I think I was invited to a lot of like hedge fund managers wine dinners because I was like a good looking 26 year old who like knew everything about every vineyard in Jeffrey Chamberton. Oh know? yeah, that's so, an attractive skill set to uh, a hedge fund. Uh, you know, wine 
wine of her on a file. Yeah. Yeah. So like I was at tables with Alan Meadows and Clive Coates, like really yeah, young, awesome. Like and blind tasting. Like, yeah, cool. Real young. I remember having like a religious experience over a bottle of um, Rumier Bon Mar, nineteen ninety. That I is that is a religious experience. Oh my god. <laughs> um, I mean, that's the kind of cool thing about the city, though. I mean, you get you know this intersection of you know people that are you know, coming up by the bootstraps with these pillars of, you know, these, these kind of enclosed communities. And, and if you're sufficiently passionate then, um, and you play your cards right and you're lucky, you know, you can get invited to those tables with, you know, these towering figures in, you know, the world that you are just kind of entering. Well, that's why I say to young people, like, get the F out of your, like, remote situation in the suburbs, like, get to the city, go yeah. live there, like, do whatever you can to be in, like, the... The, like the knife fight of New York or DC or LA or whatever, but like just get into the city because that's yeah. where you make yourself. Yeah, so your things things will happen in, in a different way. Yeah. Um, well, so you go from New York and go from you know, um, you know, knocking elbows uh, for the sake of your hedge fund friends with you know some of the greatest critical voices uh, on Burgundy to living in Burgundy itself. How did that come about? Yeah, so um, I left the auction world and I um, met a, a very um, flamboyant guy and he wanted to open a wine store that was a former fish market and I, he asked me to come work for him and he promised me this thing called equity, which I, I had no idea what that meant. Um, so I was a wine buyer for a store for three years. So like, I didn't know anything about the wholesale world and like the distributors and who carries what and I didn't know who Kermit Lynch was or Joe Dresner and I learned really fast. So I went to like 8,000, I, I tasted like 800 wines a week for three straight years. And it was all like, not Bon Mar. It was like cheap stuff, like Landmark Chardonnay and like everything, everything. Um, so I got this crazy education. And at one of these hedge fund dinners, um, this Burgundy winemaker was at the table and like fell head over heels for me. Little, little did he know the like, um, the the storm inside my head but oh, nice. he thought I was cute and <laughs> so we developed a relationship and we did long distance and flying back and forth and then um in two, end of 2007 we decided that I'd lived there oh wild yeah so it but I was back and I was really you know I was just jumping on planes and going to harvest in 2007 I did harvest in Condrieu and Cote Roti oh, that's awesome uh and you speak French yeah, I mean, I did speak French, but I haven't really used it enough. So this year, 2023 is Mary's back in France. Here, okay, yeah, I you're, really you're probably vous français. Uh, oui, yeah, oui, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Um, we get the accent at the very least, uh, which is kind of the most important part. Um, mm. What did you learn in Burgundy? So you go from you know appreciating this wine remotely to kind of living in with it. Um, how did yeah. that experience shape you know your understanding of <laughs> you know the wine itself and the culture that you know produced it? Well, I mean, if I'm complaining about people like f flagrantly, you know, drinking wine without a care there, you know, and then the table I was comparing it to, like, they know how to consume wine in the best way. There's nothing better than the way the Europeans eat and drink. Uh, it's so, it's like a religious experience. You have all these people coming to get the family table, the way it's so long, nobody, I mean, it, there's no music. Like, that's the thing that kind of drives me crazy about American restaurants. It's like, everything's so loud. You can't, like, connect. Like, they're 
you like there I would go to lunches that were like five hours long on a Sunday. Yeah, you just yeah. wouldn't leave the table because yeah. it was such a fun time. And you're not like over drinking. You're not getting drunk, but you are like drinking great like bottles. And people are so excited about like the moldy bottle they just dug out of the cellar to bring to lunch and like just the way it's like slow and connected. And I just, so I was there um, trying to be the girlfriend of this winemaker. And there was a lot of things things at play. Like he was getting really famous and a lot of press and being flown around by rich people. And, you know, I was like kind of evolving and trying to figure out like who I am. And so I went to um, two programs. I went one semester at the University of um, Oregon at Dijon. Mm -hmm. And then another semester in tour. So in both places, I was like deep. Like in tour, I went all around. I was living in Mont-Louis for a little bit. Are you studying, um, you know, enology, viticulture? No. Or you're studying the How business boring. of wine? <laughs> Sorry. No, no, no. I love wine and the taste of wine. and But I am not a scientist. Yeah. And I can't even tell you how sparkling wine is made. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> this is my no, running no, joke. No, yeah, like, no, it's how it's are okay. the bubbles in that yeah, bottle? Yeah. But I know how to taste it and select yeah. it and enjoy it and talk about it. Um, anyway, I wrote a news, I started writing a newsletter um, and selling wine as a, like an online retailer. Oh, cool. Through a store in New York. These are like in the dark ages of uh, internet commerce. I know. I like kind of came up with this thing. Um, and I was selling wine to like people in America through the internet um, and on an email. And Food and Wine magazine mentioned it in a, in a they said like best summer wine reads, like Mary oh, Taylor's cool. Mission. Circa when? 2008. Oh, wild. Yeah. Um, and so I had like 8,000 subscribers uh -huh. and I would put out an offer and people would be like two cases and I'd already have their account set up. Um, but one time, this is really funny, Joe Dresner called me like furiously angry. So uh, for the uninitiated, Joe Dresner is um, a seminal um, New York importer of, of wines um, and, uh, you know, God rest his soul, famously short tempered uh, as well. Yeah. And like. Yeah, kind of a hothead, but a sweetie pie. Like, I mean, he was really fortunate that people got to know both sides of him. Um, but he called me really angry and said, you know, I've worked really hard to set up my import company and like that you're selling wine around me. Like, he was so furious that I was selling Domaine de Bolivier, the Janier producer. Do you know the Pinot Donis? Yeah, I love those wines. Absolutely love those wines. And I got to visit and everything. And uh, after he had gone on his tirade, I said, Joe, um, you sell wines to Polaner, right? And he said, yes. And I said, well, I'm buying these from Polaner via Ledoux Wines in New York. And so therefore, I'm your customer. I'm not going around you. And he was like, <gasps> I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it was so cute. Like, I don't know. It was just, He was a big ball of kind of innocent joy and anger and whatever. But it was like. <laughs> you just had to let him process it. In <laughs> yeah, like, he in was like really real embarrassed and sorry. Yeah, yeah. So it was a kind of a funny moment. Oh, that's cool. So, yeah. you know, you kind of get this initial taste of... Um, you know, your potential as, as a merchant. How does that evolve into the white label? Yeah, so, um, like, one thing I'll note is that I was really bad at um, business. Like, I didn't understand business law and contracts and equity. And well, there's, there's, there's a lot, too, for the sake of importing wine. Um, yeah. There are just a lot of, of layers. And I think a good place to start is, you know, a simple understanding of what exactly you bring to the supply chain. So you do not make wine. No. You do not sell wine directly to consumers. Um, I mean, in an indirect way. Indirect yeah. way, yeah, yeah. So, so this, so is, like the, directly, this no. is like the office space, like, 
What is it exactly that you do here, Mary Taylor? <laughs> <laughs> um, I have set up like a very complicated and efficient supply chain. Um, I import wine. I take, you know, I put, I also create this label mm -hmm. that I hope um, is recognizable, especially to people like I was at 24 years old and didn't know anything about like 10 or $15 wine. Um, a, like kind of a way to find good stuff by just making it obvious by, via a brand. This is not done. Like people are like, who is, who does she think she is putting her name? I've heard all the comments because my sales reps get tell me all the like n nasty comments. So I hear like, who does she think she is putting her name on uh, all over the bottle? Um, <laughs> but the only reason I do that as opposed to the back is a couple things. Just market confusion. I think there, there's just, what, there's 230,000 brands out there of wine. People are super confused. Um, there's no like powerful European brand that like gives Kim Crawford like a, you know, a little bit of challenge, you know, there's like the big, I was like, why doesn't, um, elitist hipster wine people, whatever, Brooklyn, where I come from, um, why don't they like challenge constellation brands or the big, huge, big box brand make like, why don't real wine people have any presence in the like $12 space? Like, yeah. like the only wine I would drink that I know to grab off a shelf, you know, is like Lay's Heretique from Dresner. Like yeah. that's a super good wine at that price. Yeah. Um, people used to call me all the time and say like, what should I buy? And I'd say, I don't know, like look for like a really ugly label, European words. Like that's probably good. Well, yeah, it's interesting. So importers are legally obliged to, put their stamp uh, or put their name on the back of any bottle they input. And, you know, a good way to buy wine in a retail setting is to find the Dresners of the world, to find the Rosenthal's of the world, to find the Kermit Lynch's of the world and turn around the bottle and, you know, see that, you know, kind of mark of approval and go from there. You've given that primacy. So you've taken that, you know, little bit of information on the back and you've made it essentially like this entree point into a universe of Appalachian-based wine. Well, yeah, because, I mean, knowing that you turn around the bottle and that, like, if it says Rosenthal, it's probably good, is, um, that's that's another level of elitism, I think, yeah. you know? It's like um, assuming people have that knowledge and that information has gotten through to them. And, um, I, like, I would just, I, I did a lot of funny market research, but, like, generally nobody knows if Sancerre is a place or a grape. Um, people in America don't understand wine. For the record, it's a place. <laughs> it is a place. It's a beautiful, beautiful place, and yes. everyone should go there. You'll it's just gorgeous with village me. on a hill along <laughs> the banks of the storybook oh, Loire, Loire River in French Chateau country. The little scenes and vignettes are, like, yeah. incredible. Um, but, um, but, yeah, no, I mean, I think that there's um, there was kind of a moment where there was no more room in the import world for just like another horse trader, like yeah. another portfolio that like, oh, I now carry Rumier, you know? It's like, oh my God, that's the book that has Rumier. Like there was... Like there's already Becky Washerman. We don't need another Becky Washerman. Right, yeah. who wasn't an importer. Um, but yeah, like the people... I, I don't think the imprimatur of like a person was help any more helpful. There was just like, there's 16,000 importers out there doing the same thing, <laughs> kind of. And I was like, well, why, why does it, it was just an idea to like, 
streamline. So it got, somebody gave me a tank sample one day in 2010 or something, and they just wrote with a you know black marker what the wine was out of the tank on a white sticker, and that was the beginning. That was the Eureka moment. That was the Eureka moment. What was, was the in, What was the wine? It was a Pessac Leonian. Like oh, cool. A, it was a Bordeaux Blanc. Um, and then they showed me their like proprietary label, and I was like, Ugh. there's like a really bad design sensibility in like wine graphic designers in Europe. I don't know why. There's some really good ones, you know. And then there's a whole bad. I like would love to do a film strip of like what the original packaging of this would look like. No, it's I, super. It's super cool for me. It has this like copper plate, like uh, you know, 19th century like printing aesthetic. Cool. I like um, that. that. That's really clean. Well, it doesn't hurt that my label designer is literally the art director for Doubleday Book Publishing. Oh, there you go. And yeah, she yeah. was at um, Random House and um, Penguin before. So like, I'm like, she's no schlub. She's Emily Mahan is just the most talented font person. So like, these are private fonts. No one can copy them because they can't get them. Oh, yeah. That, you know? it, uh, designing, in my, so my wife's a graphic designer. Um, I went to school for it. And she always talks about topography as this just, like, amazing skill and the difficulty and erudition it requires to mm -hmm. just design something as, you know, as seemingly facile as a, as a font. Right. And, like, I've had a wine, I've had producers change the spacing or the size. Oh, they, they alter the kerning. Yeah. Is that like a is that like instant uh, <laughs> instant well, uh, death for? Well, for no. If I say what on earth did happened to my label, <laughs> like what did you do? And they were like, well, the printer thought it would be better, and I'm like, like one less. You have one lesson learned. Yeah, yeah. But if you push back and tell me that that I'm wrong and you're right, you're fired. Yeah. Bye. There's like plenty of other wine producers. Yeah. Um. But so yeah, I go and find wines that are I think a really really good benchmark example of their appellation. Yeah, so um, it's a great place to kind of segue into our first bottle here. So um, a beautiful white label uh, for the sake of this first wine we're drinking says Menchuela. Um, yeah, and uh, you, dropped, you, dropped men, you dropped the you know, word appellation. Um, you know, what is Menchuela, a Menchuela and, and what is an appellation, Mary Taylor? Yeah, so in Spanish it would be a denominación or in Italian denominazione. But appel moi is or call me or je m'appelle Marie is I call myself Mary, um, and so an appellation is like the calling it by its nameness. <laughs> There's no translation for it, which is so tip, it's so like perfect for why we have such a cluster of misinformation in this country about wine. Um, but I it, it's it's a geographic designation by which um, it's been determined that the flavor and tastes of the agricultural product that comes from here is like is l like the other is similar to itself I don't know it's so hard yeah, can you so explain it Bill well no there's, a, there's this word so it, you know it, it is this, a sense of, of terroir in, in wine and um, one of my favorite definitions of terroir comes from uh, the English wine critic Hugh Johnson uh, he describes it as the whole ecology of the vineyard, every aspect of its surroundings from bedrock to late frost to autumn mist, not excluding the way the vineyard is tended, not even the soul of the vineyard. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, big ups you, Johnson. Um, uh, Isn't he Australian? No, no, very English. Oh, that's Oz Clark. I get the yeah, mixed yeah, up. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, no, very English, like uh, Cambridge, Oxford, Don. Uh, both he and Jancis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, he's the best. Um, 
uh, yeah, I always recommend, you know, in, in speaking to, you know, the geography of wine, um, the World Atlas of Wine is like the first place to stop, you know, as far as I'm concerned, for a, a reference work if you're just getting into wine. Um, wine is a map, uh, is, is kind of Hugh Johnson's stock, stock phrase. And, um, you know, what you're, you're speaking to for this, uh, you know, French notion of, of call me by my name is, is the sense of somewhereness this collective memory of place as it concerns wine and and cheese and cheese yeah and, and, and it's, it's like it's i think it's diametrically opposed to the way that a lot of americans grow up where you know there's transience or you know um sense of not necessarily belonging to anywhere that 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 is not true certainly of all americans but you know i think a lot of suburban americans have have that have that sense and um you know in these corners of the continent you know people grow up with these products that predate them, um, that will outlive them, and have their own um, identity uh, that is wrapped up in, you know, the geography, the culture, all of these, you know, different dynamics at play for the place. And um, to, I think, whittle that down to um, a particular grape, um, you know, feels um, too small, feels derivative, mm -hmm. feels, you know, um, you that's, know, that's why I hate this new thing, red blend. Yeah, it's like Apothex, yeah, yeah. new marketing but, campaign. Uh, yeah, so in, in this case, you know, in, in the French, you know, system, they, they wouldn't say that you know Sancerre is Sauvignon Blanc. It is it is Sancerre. Mm -hmm. um, there are other Sauvignon Blancs in the world that don't taste like Sancerre. Mm -hmm. um, um, and uh, for the sake of this offering, uh, we have Manchuela, and um, Manchuela is um, a place in the kind of arid heart of Spain. Um, what is the somewhereness of this place, this wine. Yeah, this is fairly cool. This is new to me, so I'm always learning. I, I don't try to say I'm the biggest expert in the world. I just think that this is an excellent project. Um, Menchuela is a denomination that was a part of Castilla-La Mancha. La Mancha, the Dio, is the biggest Dio in the world. It's like the men thereof. Yeah, exactly. Um, Windmill chasing. Ex totally. And... Um, uh, in La Mancha, you have like this network of aquifers. I do a, I work with a, a farm in La Mancha with a Macabeo, um, with a grape. But across these river, there's these two rivers that define Manchuela. It's a totally different terroir. So they were able to sort of cordon it off and make it its own denomination. Not sure the year, but I think it's within the past like 20 years. Um, but this is a higher altitude, like rolling um, place. It's more green, verdant. Um, there's a lot more water um, above the land. In, in La Mancha, it's all it's like underneath aquifer. Here you have rolling hills and streams and rivers, um, and it's it's a bit more beautiful, I would say. Um, and then this farm, I found this woman, uh, thanks to a, my friend Nicola, who's a um, she kind of sources relationships with Spanish winemakers, but this woman, Ruth um, Jimenez, 35 years old, running this 600 hectare farm, 28 or 30 hectares of vines. She's growing Graciano, Bobal, this Moravia Agria, which we'll talk about. But she's working, she's basically on her own, you know, mm -hmm. like she has a family living on the property that help her and she has some vineyard help. Um, but like she's, I, like the, just watching her like turn the heat on in the the dining like the place we were gonna eat because she's like trying to save money and like juggle everything and do it on her. I was like, oh my god, yeah, you're one of us. Yeah, you know these like self-made women who work their face off and um, and she's just a, I think such an excellent winemaker. Not only are we doing this wine as a collaboration like the Mary Taylor Manchuela with Ruth's name right on the front. 
but we're going to import everything she makes. Oh, that's awesome. She's going to be my second import after our oh, project. Yeah, so you'll see a lot more. She does like orange wine and things that, you know, I'm not really in orange wine. I, like you wouldn't see a Mary Taylor orange wine, but I would import one on, with her packaging and everything. Oh, interesting. So you feel like uh, orange wine is outside your purview for the sake of the Mary Taylor brand. I've, besides like one experience with Radicon or something, I've, I'm, this is, it's not a type of wine that I've like found in, immense enjoyment with yeah. yet. So, you know, you'll have to school me, Bill. I'm, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I don't have the tattoos for it, but I have the hipster Samsung disease. Um, okay. uh, yeah, uh, so uh, how did you find her? You are, you're a Francophile, uh, but you are in the heart of Castilian Spain here. Well, so my first love was France. Um, my second love, when I had the store, I was really in this Italian t moment. Um, my third love was Portugal, because the wines of Portugal took me on this incredible, really long, arduous trip. And I learned all about Portugal, and I started importing Portuguese wines a long time ago. But Spain, I always struggled with, because to me, Spain was like overblown, over-manipulated, oaked up, you know, the Jay Miller scandal of 2004 when all the big oak bomb Priorat wines got 100 points and everyone followed suit. And then as a counter to that came along some importers that were bringing in like really cool, like, you know, interesting wines from Galicia and, but like, honestly, a lot of those cool importers have gone so nat natty, natty wine. And I like the natty wine movement, I, I, Despise. Well, let's let's table let's table that for <laughs> table let's table that, that for a hot second. Sorry. No, 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 no. We'll get we'll get back to that because uh, I think um, that's a, a really interesting discourse, you know, in the context of your brand. But but I was I was looking for wines from Spain that were like middle of the road, that were really good, represent honest, pure, mineral driven, terroir driven, and not like I, one thing or another yeah. like on either pole just like really honest wines. So what does so, that mean for you for the sake of how this wine comes to the table? And, um, you know, in terms of the way, you know, someone buys a white label wine, mm. um, you know, what is, you know, kind of, what are the limits, you know, for the sake of, you know, the kind of work that your producers do in the vineyard and in the cellar to transmit this, you know, um, thing that is somewhereness and terroir? Yeah, so like great winemaking to me is um, vineyard management that's not, laden with chemicals, but it's, you know, not necessarily like biodynamic. Um, it's yields that aren't above, you know, 55 hectoliter per hectare and not below 25. Um, minimal use of sulfur. Uh, and, you know, treatment of the grapes in like, a, you know, a careful and gentle way where you're not like, it's you're not putting like moldy, you know, you, you handle your fruit well. I like a little bit of stem usually. Uh, um, I'm, a, I'm a sucker for some inclusion. Yeah, yeah I yeah. Um, I don't love um, whole cluster much, even though there's a little bit in both of these wines. Well, yeah, we'll get to that. I think that's another <laughs> that's another fascinating conversation. Yeah. Um, but uh, and then like not, I don't like inoculation. Um, I don't mind inoculation with local cultivated yeast. I know yeast is like a it's a dirty word. It no, for the, so for the uninitiated, um, uh, yeast are the single cellular heroes of the uh, fermentation journey. It's the same yeast that leavens bread, makes our beer, and ferments wine, Saccharomyces cerevisa, and uh, it exists uh, in the wild on grape skins, along with all sorts of other yeasts. And uh, the miracle of wine is that it makes itself. Um, if you press the grapes and uh, leave the juice to its own devices, and 
Um, you know, my favorite wines, I think your favorite wines are the ones that are fermented with those yeast as opposed to yeast that are, you know, ultimately cultivated in a lab and then introduced to the wine. And the reason you do that as a winemaker um, is that, you know, there's a level of determinacy for the sake of a flavor profile or just for the sake of a more efficient commercial product. Right. Um, and I think that there's, that's a big debate, I think, because I think a neutral, like an, an introduction of a neutral yeast is not the worst thing in the world. No, right? it's, it's, it's interesting too. So there's, um, uh, I've, I've had this conversation with uh, a lot of winemakers and uh, particularly um, uh, so a father and two sons at an Austrian producer called Hedler, and they switched actually from a native yeast ferment to their own specifically isolated strain mm -hmm. um, because they felt like uh, the native yeast ferments um, were you know, adding this overlay of cellar influence um, to their wines. Mm -hmm. And uh, they thought for the sake of you know, transparency um, and all the work they were doing in the vineyard, uh, they felt like there was more, um, you know, kind of, uh, there's more of a through line uh, for the sake of their wines with the same, um, you know, locally uh, isolated strain mm -hmm. than there was for um, a wild ferment. And I think that's a fascinating debate to have. Now, um, there are, you know, kind of um, natural wine movement people who will argue to the blue in the face that that is essentially an unnatural addition to the party. And I think it's fun to have those debates, but uh, I like actually talking through the process of it as opposed to just the polemic of calling something unnatural and, you know, voting it off the island. Well, it's funny. Like, I, way back when, when I was writing about wine in France, I knocked on Mar the LaPierre's door. Yeah, yeah. And Marcel and I went on a drive. Oh, uh, before sadly, yeah, sadly, he has, has passed away. Um, yeah, I mean, David Lett taught me a lot. He's passed yeah. away. There's some great, you know, uh, and, and figures. It's Marcel's, uh, you know, son and daughter running the Reese now. Yeah, uh, Christoph, yeah. I think. Um, yeah, so Marcel actually brought me around to um, look at vineyards with him in his oh, awesome. like, little Jeep. And he showed me like an organic certified quote unquote vineyard that was like dead. Like the earth was dead. There was no life. There was nothing for the bees to, you know, use for, there was just like nothing regenerative about it. And then he showed me a non-organic vineyard that was like tr buzzing with all kinds of life and nutrients. And, and it gave me a real hard education on like using labels and like one thing is natural and one isn't. Um, so I'm, I'm really, up, I, I trust in the winemaker to yeah. make a good wine. If I open the wine and it's not wonderful, you know, I don't buy it. You yeah. know, that's just how it, but it's the, the specifics, those technical details, like I leave it to the winemakers. Yeah. I, do, I do find for the sake of your wines that you have universally a preference for wines that don't see any overt oak. No, you, there's no oak in most of my wines. Yeah. I do have a little, I like, sometimes I like when Pinot gets a little oak. Yeah. Um, so I have a, a Cote de Genois wine that has a touch of oak. Yeah. But that's the only one. Yeah, you, you want, you want like uh, lightly applied makeup as opposed to, you know, like full drag queen get up. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, I love drag queens, but um. no, no, and, and they're honestly like I do. I think there are some like you know uh, oaked equivalents of you know wine as drag queens that I really like, mm -hmm. um, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I don't know if they belong under the white label. No, uh, this yeah. is like yeah, yeah. Actually, people before they've met me and like before all this media and stuff, like people didn't know. I had a rep tell me that. Um, 
that they thought I was a little old lady from New England, like just the look and feel of oh, her packaging. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I loved that. No, that's awesome. I uh, am a little old lady from New England, nice. actually. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just aspire to one day be. Um, uh, you know, what appeals to you, you know, for the sake of this Mentuello drinking, which comes from a, a widely esoteric grape called Prieto Picudo. Oh, um, the Mentuela. Yeah, yeah. No, that's Mar- Oh, sorry, I, I paused. Yeah, so, no, I'm, I'm, getting my, I'm jumping ahead to the second, uh, my second wildly obscure Spanish grape. Um, what is the grape, uh, Mary Taylor, on the Mentuela? Mentuela, so that is the name of the place, and the grape is Moravia Agria. She also grows Bobal and Graciano. Mar- it, there's this really cool Facebook page you must follow called AAWE, the American Association of Wine Economics. I don't know who these people are, but I love you. Like, it's the nerdiest charts and graphs. So they had one recently that was like the prevalence of Spanish varietals grown in Spain. And like from the most to and the least. And where did Moravia rent? <laughs> I think it was the second to last. What was the last? I don't know, but we should look it uh, up. No, 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 I should have come prepared. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so uh, Moravia Agria, I checked, does have an entry in Jancis Robinson's Wine Grapes. Does it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's not sufficiently obscure that, it, you know, uh, she and her cohorts did not track it down and give it a full... Uh, a full entry, but it is it is esoteric. Very so. Moravia is like an area in Czechoslovakia. It was in Czech, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but it has nothing to do it's, with it's, Czech. Honestly, it's like beer country. It's like Pilsner country. Yeah, they make wine there. They actually make awesome wine there. But uh, yeah, oh, yeah. Well, um, well, this varietal doesn't have any historical relationship with oh, Moravia. It's they no they don't. I've I've looked everywhere. There's no explanation of yeah. why it's called that. But there's also a Moravia Dolce. So Agria means bitter. Okay. And Dolce is sweet. Um, but it's an interesting varietal, and I I love the idea that this varietal is indigenous to this yeah. area, um, and it's being cultivated and preserved by this amazing winemaker. Um, of course, I have to. But it wasn't the like the, kind of the, the niche part of it that attracted me to it. I buy, like, in the pandemic, people were shipping me, like, a case of samples, and I would open, you know, and, like, be watching, like, the Gilmore Girls or something, and, like, I'd be having a glass. Uh, how was that rewatch? It's so good. I never watched <laughs> it for the first, I never had a TV oh, or heard. cable, okay. so uh, I'm, heard. like, get, watching older shows sometimes, um, but I, I would have a, I, most things I don't, you know, most things are manipulated, overblown, boring, um, overyielded, extracted, whatever. And so I'm like, no, 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 no. And then occasionally I'm like, ooh. Like, yeah. There's this tuning fork moment. <laughs> what is this? Yeah. Love it. Like, can't stop drinking it. I, it's just incredible, delicious, bright. Like, there's some good acid, but it's also rich. Like, all of the things, and I'm like, what on earth is this? And that was how I found the wine. Oh, a cool. big box of samples. So you started kind of backwards for the sake of the wine. Um, uh, was the place as you imagined uh, when you visited? Oh, even better. Yeah. It was, it's like, I brought um, my team, my, Nicole and Jen, um, and I went there together, and um, we were just blown, like we love, to collectively love this farm, the story, the beauty, the... The whole thing is so legit. What do you think of it? Uh, I, I really adore it, and this is the first time I've had it. Um, I love that it's dusty and earthy, and you describe this place as kind of higher altitude, dry, windswept. Um, but what it manages that, that's kind of, I think, difficult to pull off for the sake of uh, red wine is it has this dusty, earthy, peppery, um, you know, like the, like the really nice way in Sonoma, cracked black peppercorn uh, streak. Yeah. Uh, but it, it brings that to the table at a lower ABV. Um, and in this like bright, refreshing package, I feel like that's a package I'm, I'm 
you know, more used to for the sake of, you know, something from the Southern Rhone that's, you know, at 14, you know, uh, percent alcohol and, and, you know, is, is broader shouldered. But I, I like that this has that, you know, dusty woodsiness about it and, you know, this licorice leaf for the sake of this mm -hmm. dried fruit um, yeah. component. But it delivers that in this gloriously refreshing, you know, kind of bundle. Yeah, I think I'm like, I'm, I have such a Burgundian palate. Like, I really, really, really became a burgundy head along the way. And I think it, I'm buying wine from that perspective. Yeah, yeah. So I'm all about like that elegance and perfume and nuance. And I love stuff like that. Yeah. And you, you have some bigger wines in your portfolio for the sake of, you know, reds from the Duero, Costier Nimes from, you know, the Southern extremists of the, of the Southern Rhone and they're plush, but you know, they're balanced, uh, you know, uniformly. Yeah, um, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, uh, so a uh, second wine here, yeah. um, uh, if we're looking at this label, um, we see Castilla y Leon. Um, uh, situate us in relation to Manchuela within Spain. So Manchuela, we're like on the other, like extreme opposite. So draw a diagonal line northwest, then you get to Leon province. I always say if Spain was like a square and there was no land above Portugal, it would be yeah, the Yeah, it's like 86 corner. Galicia. Yeah, yeah 86 Galicia. Um, which, yeah, by the way, just an aside, if I could just have unlimited selections, I have like four Galician wines I want to launch right away. Oh, the Gallegos are awesome. It's such oh a cool wine culture. Yeah, I yeah. know, I yeah. know, but yeah. I just... I well, and, and, and Galicia, like Green Spain, is kind of a land apart. Um, you know, it is geographically isolated from the rest of Spain. It is meteorologically, you know, climactically, uh, you know, uh, isolated from the rest of Spain. I just want to hang out there. It's yeah, so beautiful yeah. and dramatic. Yeah. And yeah. Oh. And there's a sense of like, uh, I mean, that's, that's like subject of another episode, but uh, <laughs> there's this witchiness about it. So uh, it's, uh, you know, I, I imagine, you know, like the witches from Macbeth hanging out in Galicia. Um, and, you know, there's all this like uh, Celtic influence and folklore and stuff like that. But wow, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, at any rate, this, this is um, not Galicia. This is, this is more centrally located in Leon. Yeah, so Leon, this, it's an interesting, so I love the city of Leon. It's like a really... Welcoming and beautiful and historic city, and everyone does that whole going out for tapas, and you go to bar hop, and then everybody else bar hops, and you see new friends. I love this place, but then around it is like the plains of Spain, so you have like these kind of um, big red clay plains, and that we're sort of high altitude, we're at the Picos de Europa, um, with a lot of sun and a lot of wind. And we found this grower, Pedro, he's a professor of enology at the um, University of Leon. And he is kind of jokingly referred to as Pedro Prieto Picudo because Prieto Picudo is the, his mission in life, is cultivating it, making it amazing, um, and growing it, like in doing different things with it. So our cuvee is one that is a little bit of, uh, a little tiny bit of carbonic, but not a lot, um, and made fresh and meant to drink young um, and then made in this, this way called rostra. It's like a viticultural process where the, the vines are trained as low to the ground as possible to avoid the wind and keep warm. Um, but he also does these other cuvées. Like I'm going to import these little 500 milliliters of like his cuvée that's in oak. So it's no, like cool. not a Mary Taylor style uh, Prieta Picudo. Uh -huh. So he's like all these different different cuvées of Prieta Picuda. No, that's awesome. So I think it's cool. Like, I don't know why, which my, like, best friend in the whole world is a um, wine buyer for a big store in New Jersey, and she's, like, a real Spanish. She's been on, like, four Jorge Ordonez trips. Oh, heard. <laughs> she knows a lot of 
things about Spanish wine and uh, together, I don't know, a long, long time ago, we both became obsessed with Prieto Picudo. <laughs> uh, it's fun. So Prieto Picudo ranks, you know, slightly higher on the list you, um, you know, previously name dropped, but it is still well down uh, yeah. that, that list. Um, yeah. <laughs> and and for, for me, like, uh, you know, to the extent that I have any relationship with Prieto Picudo at all, and, and, you know, I can safely say that I'd never had uh, Moravia Agria before your Menchuela. I have had other Prieto Picudos before, but, um, you know, Prieto Picudo... Uh, delivers very often this like, um, you know, bright, ebullient, you know, raspberry fruit inflected, um, you know, kind of fresh, um, you know, diverting, you know, kind of wine experience. Uh, and a lot of Spanish reds, particularly those from uh, Garnacha, Tempranillo, um, you know, uh, are uh, Carreño, they're, they're big and brooding. Mm. Um, uh, and, you know, I've always thought of Prieto Picudo as something that's kind of flirty, you know, and, and Again, fun. Yeah. A burgundy buyer's yeah, guide yeah, yeah, to yeah. Spain. Yeah, totally. totally. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, you name dropped uh, carbonic maceration for the uninitiated carbonic is this process. Uh, so actually, a, it's not, you know, technically a, a type of ferment, fermentation. It's an enzymatic reaction within grapes when they're left whole in an anaerobic environment. So 86 oxygen, leave your grape clusters whole, and the grapes will start to ferment from within, which sounds like odd science fiction, but it's not any different than bananas browning. Um, and uh, it produces a small amount of alcohol, but it also tends to give wines this flavor profile um, that is uh, juicy and, you know, lip-smacking, kind of like, you know, bubble gummy. Um, uh, and it kind of, it can run roughshod over Mm -hmm. uh, the somewhereness that has been the topic of our show, uh, because you know, for a lot of wines, the carbonic, the process, you know, to my mind, uh, can supersede the the place and yeah. the varietal character. It, it can supersede it in a fun way. It's not to say that you know these wines are unenjoyable, but for the sake of wine as a vessel of place, I think with a lot of carbonic wines, you do get into this Zoolander. Latigra Blue Steel One Look Place, regardless of where they're from and what grape they're made with. So it makes sense to me that's something that you kind of avoid for the sake of your wines. Although I will say there are a lot of regions where it is, you know, a big part of their traditional winemaking. And um, kind of, I mean, our Beaujolais Village doesn't have any carbonic. Like, yeah, yeah. Mil militantly so. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> But like I think Alice Faring said, um, like which she and I probably are on opposite spectrums in some ways in wine. But she I famously said that carbonic wines were not wines of terroir. Yeah, yeah. I, I think there is something to that. Uh, they could be diverting, they could be you know juicy and wildly refreshing. But there's some truth to that. I, I like this wine because it doesn't only taste carbonic. It feels like the carbonic is just kind of. Uh, you know, in a choir, you know, a, a soprano just kind of like lifting everything. Yeah, it's probably like ten percent. Yeah, 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 So yeah. it's not. It's yeah. Not fully so it's just it's just kind of lightening everything up in a, yeah. in a really in a really pleasant way, and that voice is there, but it's not dominating the the conversation. Right, and we don't want to dominate because we really really want to um, taste that earth. I noticed you have the picture of um, this gentleman. That is not Pedro on that picture, but um, he is this guy that famously knows how to do rostra viticulture. Oh, strong, like, strong beard. He, that guy looks like he spent his life pruning vines. Yes, he did. And he doesn't have a cell phone, so you have to just accidentally run into him and ask him if he'll work your vineyards for three days or something. Um, yeah, so, no, we do, we do want to taste the place and the romance of it all. And, like, Spanish dining is a whole different thing. Like, French dining is very, you know, the hours are different, the foods are different. 
and like I just you know hard Spanish cheese and some charcuterie whatever like this is a perfect perfect pairing for that yeah totally um so I I I love this wine it's been you know it's like it's it's like a naughty child a little bit for us because like some vintages have a different variation and stuff but you know I think we're having 19 which has been amazing and then sometimes really funky there was one lot that was a bit funky so we oh, put, really? we actually had to pull it but um uh, but yeah, otherwise, like this lot that you have is like a perfect. Yeah, it's great. And it's like bright. And, you know, I think it belongs a little bit to the genre of like chillable reds. Um, yeah. yeah. And well, it probably looks that way because of the clear burgundy bottle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no, and, and the, you know, honestly, the color too, um, you know, is, is you know, a, a step darker than, you know, dark rosé, but still, yeah. you know, not inky. By any means, I kind of am tempted to bring in his dark rose. Too. Oh, cool! He has one. Oh, yeah, I love those wines. Uh, is that Prieto Picudo as well? Yeah, it's just a, a touch lighter than this. Yeah, and, cool. But the like in I in New York, they no one will buy a dark rose. Really? <laughs> or they wouldn't like ten years ago. Uh, I think that's sure. I think that's changed. I think yeah, I think I the moment for changed. the moment for dark rose has definitely has definitely come. Oh, um, good. I hope so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, that is one of my major. You know, wine nerd acts to grind as rosé as a wine for all seasons, uh, and as a genre that is every bit as as fluid um, as as any other other genre. And you, sure, you have your you know patio pounders, you know Provencal style ethereal onion skinned wines, but you equally you know have your you know Chateau Simons, you have your Bandeau rosés, you have you know your Etna, Etna rosados. You know you have these wines that are gastronomic rosés that are bigger that you know. Uh, you know, can be built to last, uh, have so <laughs> much more to, to offer. And, and to my mind, you know, those are, are wines that behave in these beguiling and unexpected and glorious ways tableside with food, uh, you know. And, uh, yeah, th that, is, that is a genre that uh, I would be excited to, uh, you know, always excited to drink more of and would love to try uh, from you. Uh, we kind of we skirted this this question of uh, natural uh, in in wine, and I want to you know circle back to that because it is this touchstone. And and for the uninitiated, there you know the natural wine movement was a necessary reaction to uh, the over industrialization of uh, particularly uh, agriculture uh, post World War II and uh, the way in which uh, a generation of winemakers came to work in the cellar that was uh, very interventionist and allowed them to standardize and commodify wine as never before, but equally stripped the wine of, you know, all of its soul and created something that was more wine-favored beverage and less yeah. wine of place. More as we, commodity. Yeah, as, as we understand it. it. And uh, natural winemaking is all about a lack of intervention, human intervention in the uh, vineyard and in the cellar. The problem with natural wine as a term is there's no codified definition that is, is widely applied by all the people who use the term, although the French have tried to enshrine it uh, as part of their, their appellation system, but uh, a lot of natural winemakers would want nothing to do with that codification. Uh, and, you know, uh, there are a lot of you know, points of practice for the sake of what constitutes natural wine that people have um, lively, spirited, and necessary arguments about. Mm. Uh, do you think of your wines as, as quote-unquote natural? Right. I mean, as a word, yes, yeah. but not as, like, a 
cult mission statement thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're in D.C., so we can liken it to politics. Like, I would say the yellow tails are, like, the far right and the, like, banged up, bready, like... Uh, those are, like, the Jacobins. Or the far left. Yeah, you know? yeah. That, that's, like, a good, that's actually a good way to understand it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I feel like... Yeah, I also don't, like, stripped, commoditized, boring... Yeah. Um, plonk. Um, but I also... I don't, like, tanks injected with Brett... I don't like that there was there was a well I'll just put it this way like I was in really the greatest of great wine genres and auctions and and I felt like I got this amazing education and I love Dresner and Rosenthal and all these great importers but then around 2010 like these I, I don't know what happened but it felt like the New York City was like invaded by like Seattle Trustafarians who were like so snooty about like Jean-Louis Chave was not um, natty enough and like it was all about natty 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 and I remember I went to this one natural wine bar um, early on and everything tasted like nail polish remover every single wine yeah, like acetone. the exact same yeah. and I was you know I, I was in the Loire Valley in like 2005 six, seven. like I was obsessed with like some of these small producers doing really really interesting like Vouvray and Mont Louise and and like I wasn't cool enough for the natty. Like I don't fit into skinny jeans, and I don't have like a collection yeah. of striped bobo. Yeah, shirts it becomes it becomes like a um, reconstitution of the middle school cafeteria experience. Ugh. And uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, I, I feel like I don't belong at that lunch table. Yeah, um, and it discounts like yeah. really hardworking, meaningful people that have like a lot of knowledge and experience. I if you're not part. I mean, Rudolf Steiner himself was like a eugenicist. Yes, he was. Uh, he and yeah, and and his whole you know um, kind of ontological uh, framework was founded on a notion of reincarnation that was fundamentally racist. Right. Yeah. And like I saw people that were like really normal, conventional, not normal, but like conventional type people t in wine turn into like bobo hipsters because it was what was selling yeah. and like even their whole personality and then like they were invited into the exclusive club and everything felt so exclusive like so I who you heard my whole background was like ultra passionate about this stuff was like I wasn't cool I mean I've never belonged to any um, group that would have me so I wasn't like cool and and I just felt like it was the purity sniff test like, are you one of us or are you not? Which yeah. is very rooted in the Nazi tradition. Oh, I don't, I don't think this. So the, are you the pure, are no, you pure uh, or are you I not? Know, I know. I, mean, I, don't think, I don't think we need to get into the natural <laughs> well, the wine. Steiner, like, you know. Yeah, I don't think we need to get into the, like, the natural wine, like Nazi comparisons. Uh, uh, so what I lament, though. It was heartbreaking. I'll just put it well, that no, way. But I, I'll say like, what I lament you know, for the sake of your political analogy is that you don't have people you know, necessarily talking all the time. Um, you know, talking through their differences. And, you know, to yeah, me, right. the wine world is really interesting when you have people um, sharing products. And I think, the, you know, the, the litmus test should be one of, you know, are you contributing to human misery for the sake of how you treat the people that, you know, bring the wine to the table? You know, no. Are you contributing to environmental degradation? No. Well, then let's party, you know? And, yeah. and there are as many ways to make a delicious wine as there are, you know, ways to write a, a beautiful poem. Oh, here uh, we go. I, no, but I'd rather, I'd rather talk about those differences as opposed to, you know, saying, uh, you know, oh, you don't use sulfur or you use sulfur, you know, fuck off. Or, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah you inoculate, you know, fuck off. Uh, or, 
uh, God forbid, for the sake of bringing in harvest, you, you know, sprayed, fuck off. And, and it feels like that's what some people in the natural wine world want to do. And then it equally feels like, uh, at times, people are elevating process over, you know, end result. And, you know, that's how you end up with wines that taste like the same thing, that taste like vinegar. Uh, and, you know, that can be fun. You know, that could be, you know, thrilling, uh, you know, for the sake of winemaking without a net, but it doesn't always work. And, you know, I don't want to pretend that I like, you know, mousy wines. And, um, you know, equally, I want to have meaningful conversations about what goes into all this. And a decision not to add sulfur is, you know, a important winemaking decision. And, and I'd rather talk that through than, you know, treat it as a litmus test. Well, just a final thing. I, um, when... People always ask me how I select my wines. They kind of, I think they think I drive around in a Citroën around France. I like that image. Yeah, um, but I go to like wine fairs and the amount of, I mean, it's just fascinating. The, um, like there'll be rows of families that have been making Sommer in the Loire Valley or Savignier or so, like, and you've never met or heard of any of them because they haven't had the, like, the right importer. Or the, and there's, you can taste like 40 Savignier in one day with like all the growers and find like a, somebody that you really deeply connect with, love their wines, who makes a great thing and is like kind of in your purview or, you know, like you see eye to eye with. And that's how I select wine. Yeah. I mean, that's what I'm looking for is like meaningful, hardworking artisans who make something I love, you know? Um, so, you know, all those technical, again, I'm not like overly um, critical about the like technical specs. Um, and I want to do something that's inclusive, that is appealing to like people at large. Too many, I think, wine professionals are pandering to each other and they're not thinking about the like, yeah. med student who's running into the liquor store to buy a bottle of wine. Yeah, and I, like, I am. Yeah, I'm trying no, to think about them. I like that you, uh, you you're, I read a quote, you said you're designing wine for your, you know, 20-something self to buy. Yeah, like yeah. my poor kid self yeah. that had $10 and I didn't want to drink the Polar Extremes. Well, we didn't really have the Natty Wine yeah, at yeah. that point, but like I didn't want to drink like industrial, far-right um Yellowtail. I had that once, and I thought, "Wow, I've, this tastes like Dimatap." I remember taking, drinking that as a medicine as a child, and this is like, bleh. and I just wanted something pure. I actually—that's the beginnings of my early days. That's when I found Portugal Vino Verdes, things like that that yeah, yeah. were affordable, but also like mineral and poignant and felt real. Awesome. So yeah, that, that's good. Are you reading me a poem? I am reading. So I'm reading actually. Uh, so the, sadly, it's the same poem I, I read uh, at the event uh, that we did. Oh, but, I loved it. I uh, know you, you liked it. So this is a uh, seminal American poet, uh, Denise Levertov. This poem is called Patience. What patience a landscape has, like an old horse, head down in its field, gray days, air and fine rain cling, become one, hovering till at last, languidly, rain relinquishes that embrace. Consents to fall, what patience a hill, a plain, a band of woodland holding still have, and the slow falling of gray rain. Is it blind fate? Is it merely a way to deeply rest? Is a horse only resigned, or has it some desirable knowledge, an enclosed meadow, quite other than its sodden field, which patience is the key to? Has it already, within itself, entered that sun-warmed shelter? Mm, perfect for today. Rainy yeah, it's a, it is a for obviously you can't uh, uh, glimpse 
outside the window, but it is a cold, rainy day. Uh, there's no horse on Columbia Road, but... Uh, it reminds me of Concord, Massachusetts. Oh, nice. Nice. I love that. Uh, so, uh, final few questions here. Um, uh, how have your wines, you know, been received? Uh, you are on the up, I feel like. Uh, you got the Eric Asimov profile treatment mm -hmm. um, in The Grey Lady, which is pretty, pretty fucking <laughs> awesome. Um, I get one more mention and I'll get an obituary. Oh, been, no, really? I've been mentioned twice, it takes, three times. Oh, three, three mentions and you get an obit? Mm -hmm. Is that the litmus test? Yes, so uh, I have to do something else. Oh, cool. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> well, that, that, could be, that could be like an, an act of desperation for your late life self. It like, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it means like, so much to me when I'm rotting the ground. Unhinged <laughs> aging importer, Mary Taylor. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, uh, you know, uh, you know how, how's, it, how's it going? You know, yeah, I think good, you know, um, I think good. I'm just freaked out. Uh, all, I mean, it's hard. I'm, I kind of liked when I was like a smaller entity because we've grown. The, the insurgency. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, like with entrepreneurs, it's funny. Like the excitement of driving a pirate ship is a lot better than dr driving a cruise liner. Oh, totally. <laughs> uh, I feel that for the sake of restaurants. The excitement of opening a restaurant is a lot you know, more exciting than having a restaurant. Right. And, um, and I keep thinking, like, I have so many, like, entrepreneurial ideas, but I was told, do not, I, I was lucky I got an entrepreneur coach at NYU, and he said, this is the problem with all you people. You, you just can't stop creating things, and yeah. you want to keep doing, like, new, exciting, but no, you have to, like, focus on what you're doing. So I really focus, and there's, just running a business is really complex, especially with people, employees, like insurance policies, like all the things. But tariffs. Does, t tariffs. <laughs> oh, God, we could have talked about that forever. Um, but how do we, uh, how, how are they received? I mean, I think pretty good. I get a lot of love letters, a lot of fan mail. I get, you, have, you have stands. Yeah, and I, it's, I love that. Um, you know, some wines are like insanely popular. I, I, I don't, um, you know, I have like some new projects like this Menchuela came in this year, but I had like, unfortunately the shipping and the nightmare and all like 10 things, new things came and it was too many new things. And so it was really hard to like properly launch um, them all. So I don't see growing much more my portfolio because I have 35 wines and just how many, like Bill, how many are you going to put on your wine list? More, not more than 20. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Right. Uh, but yeah, no, I think I, I don't I, I don't hear too much like shade. I, I definitely. Um, yeah, I, I, we're up like 45 percent this year, which is not last. Last year, we we're up like 150 percent and like, you know, couldn't do no wrong. And this year it's like a little bit harder of a push. And yeah. I, I just think the whole markets um, up. I think the wine market's only up like three, four percent this year. And so we're definitely like way above the benchmark. But um but when are we mature? You know, I don't yeah. know. Like yeah, in yeah. five years, will it be just like snore up 8% a year? You know, this kind of thing. <laughs> like, I don't know. But I work myself to death and I'm yeah. trying to not do that too much. But like, I'll be on a plane 45 weeks of the year. Like it's craziness and I need to stop. But how are they received? The long-winded answer, um, uh, great. Yeah. <laughs> well, what's the, what is, you know, the next wine on the horizon for you? Um, <laughs> You know, you talked about working more with Pieta Picudo, um, working more with your, your uh, producer in Manchuela. 
um, other other corners of the ideal world that uh, well, you, I, you're waiting to kind of introduce to the American marketplace? Yeah, I mean, this was my Spanish love affair year. I'm just so excited finding Spanish wines. Um, so I have this La Mancha that I, we launched, um, and then a couple. I mean, I I could just go on and on. Like, I'd love to have an Assisi or a Spoleto, like uh, the Umbrian. Uh, oh, heard. You know, like I don't. I haven't even. So you delved you're gonna. In enter, Italy. I feel like I feel like Umbria is kind of like the La Mancha of Italy. A Bit. Yeah, yeah. Well, I just there's so many interesting, but like in Italy, there's it's there's so many Appalachian, there's so many denominazioni. Like in Puglia, there's 26. Yeah, it's it's great. So I mean, the Italians have kind of um, like, for the oh. sake of codifying, uh, you know, their national wine law. The it's this kind of just act of creating new DOCs, you know, so yeah, it's, it's like every, every moment you look, there's a new Italian DOC, um, and, you know, the rabbit hole gets deeper and deeper for the sake of Italian wine bureaucracy. even but, in their own terroirs, they oh, don't yeah. even know, like you're, like in Puglia, for example, like they have Squinzano and Galatina and all these things, and I'm like, oh, I want to taste all of them together, I want to see what they're, the difference and nuance, and then you go and you're like, can I have the DOC Nardo, and they're like... I just have this IGT Primitivo. What are you talking about? So, like, I don't, I think that they, like, kind of, they haven't really done it as well as the French. The French have been, like, incredibly studious and meticulous about how they give an Appalachian status to a, a village. Yeah, the, the, the Italians, it's a little more like, look under your seat, there's, an, there's like a DOC waiting right. for you. Yeah. Um, but I'm excited to see you explore Italy. I feel like that feels like yeah. a fun. Well, and like the other, the, the, the case, I call it the Netflix challenge because, like, I open a bottle and I'm like, I drink it and I'm like, eh. But I found this Madiron that I couldn't believe. Like, it's a horrible Madiron. It sounds like it's not a pretty name. It's, but, and it's Tanat, which is not It's always... the quintessential Cassoulet wine. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, but it was so good. I couldn't yeah. believe it. I was, like, lapping it up. And it, it's like, oh, no, can I do with this Madiron? So I have, like, a higher-end line. And I'm like, well, can I do it in this, the higher-end? Like, uh, but I promised my colleagues no more new products this year. So okay. 2023, I have to be on a freeze. So okay. we get everything kind of going. And then maybe one or two new things. But I think we have a lot. That's awesome. Well, so. I look forward to trying more of your discoveries. Uh, where can people find your wines, find you uh, yeah. on the social medias and stuff? Yeah, Mary Taylor Wine is my Instagram. And um, the, uh, we didn't talk about the website is awesome. Uh, oh, so you. If, if you... If you do find one of Mary Taylor's signature white label offerings, uh, uh, the label itself is, is incredibly more informative, but uh, if you want to take a deeper dive, the website is, is even more informative. Why, thank you. I appreciate it. It's what I do at 3 o'clock in the morning. Um, yeah, so I, I, I don't sell direct to consumer, which makes it hard when people say, where do I find your wines? Um, I don't want to compete with my customers yeah. by selling against them. So I um, sell to my wholesalers who then sell to all of the retail stores and restaurants. So the best thing people could do is go into their retail store and say, will you please carry Mary Taylor wine? Because that, is, that would help us get a new account open and have another place to sell our wine. So that's usually the best. That said, like this weekend, I'm going down to Delaware um, doing a few events. And there's like so many supportive Bethany Beach Liquors like has like everything we do Swig in, near Wilmington like all just all over the country I think we have like 10,000 retailers that carry our wines that's amazing so we're everywhere we're just you know we're not in like big box grocery as much we're in we are in like Whole Foods but that's that's basically it at this point and um but so like we're not in on the aisles of like 
Kroger or um, Costco. I mean, not that we wouldn't. I mean, we're all about inclusivity. So if they want to buy our wines, we'll you know we'll figure that out when we cross that bridge. But um, but yeah, little small independent bottle shops generally will have our wines, and if they don't, tell tell them about us because we're pretty cool. And uh, online, you are at Mary Taylor. What's the uh, mt.wine, MT which is confounding and okay. confusing for everybody, but I thought it was cool. I have a dot .wine, so mt.wine. Huzzah. Huzzah. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Mary Taylor. For those of you listening, if you want to try either of these fabulous white label Mary Taylor offerings, they will be available for sale at Reveler's Hour, which is uh, our restaurant, but equally a retail outlet on Columbia Road in Washington, D.C., Thank you so much for joining us. Stay thirsty and stay tuned for more of The Universe in a Glass.